Welcome back to The Annotated Author, where we discuss books, movies, and other pieces of media from a cultural and artistic lens. I'm your host, David Mosqueda. Hello, everyone. It's been a while since we've been together. Sorry about that. I've been super busy, so we're back nearly a year later, and the first few episodes were a great introduction to what it is we will be doing here. Think of them like pilots. Well, now I've bettered the craft, and I think I found a formula that will work just right for what I want from this podcast overall. We have a new theme song, thanks to some feedback. A little more lively, a little more like the TCM feel I want from this show. To get us started, I really want to talk about current events. These past few months have seen a lot happen in terms of books and people's accessibility to books. I feel I'd be doing an injustice to folks that have listened to the podcast if I didn't remind them this is a safe space for them, and also spoke about the atrocities happening to the world of literature. The bans on books have happened recently are absolutely heartbreaking. When Mouse became a banned book, I felt heartbroken, but I also felt a deep sense of anger and frustration. It is astounding to me the topics that were chosen to be banned because these people are definitely not even remotely hiding their bigotry anymore. And that comes from a queer man of color that has seen some of the grossest forms of racism, bigotry, and prejudice from the earliest years of my life. So though none of it is new to me to see it happen in real time again, it is just astounding how little progress is actually made. Right-wing groups are going to war on lessons of colonization, queerness, and sexuality, or gender identity, and blackness. All Boys Aren't Blue was being banned in 15 states. George M. Johnson's book about sexuality, about being black and discovering queerness, and of course, these are always the most threatening topics to the white patriarchy. It is no surprise what groups are leading this charge. The themes in these books are often criticized using a straw man fallacy. They are often using children to defend their actions and saying these are specifically to protect children from being exposed to topics outside of their age range. In interviews, George M. Johnson can be heard defending his book, reiterating that this is a book for 14 to 18 year olds. The right would have you believe this book is being marketed to little kids right out of preschool. So as they try to change the audience for these books by generalizing to children, they create a fear among people who are oblivious to the reality of the situation. It's why so many people fall in the trap that there is a hidden cabal in Hollywood sex trafficking children. These things spread among folks that have no real information, and they are only exposed to misinformation to further progress a specific agenda. In this case, the agenda is that queerness is in fact a learned behavior. Then we get to Mouse. Now, I know there are many other books on these banned lists. These two just happen to be the two that I have read and can truly speak on. Mouse is heavy. It was heavy for a 25-year-old me when I read it. 
It is astounding to me that the reason they are rallying behind Mouse is because of nudity, as if the statue of David isn't displayed in history textbooks all across elementary schools. We were exposed to the human body and all its pubescent wonders in the fifth grade. On top of that, you can see boobs during soap operas when you stay home from school. I'm not saying get rid of it all. What I'm saying is that even if we ban Mouse, because of this, we will see it nearly anywhere else kids are exposed to any type of media. The reality is the right wing found a way to nefariously disguise their anti-Semitism and get away with their Holocaust denialism by covering it up as nude censorship. You can get more parents on board by saying we don't want to expose your kids to nudity than saying hey we don't want them to learn about the Holocaust. This wouldn't be the first time this same tactic has been used to silence Holocaust themed books. The Diary of Anne Frank has often come under fire for its sections in which Anne Frank begins to question the vagina's ability to push out a baby. People were claiming the whole book was essentially pornographic due to this small portion of the book. I mean, in terms of the overall content, the chapter is a truly important one because it reminds us of the absolute hardship it must have been to be barely understanding one's own self, one's own self and be dealing with the most atrocious acts conducted by mankind. So of course, when you use a trigger word like pornography, of course people with no experience with the book will go absolutely batshit to try and get rid of it. These books matter. Whether parents and governments want to acknowledge it or not, these books save lives. And these books build understanding, they fight bigotry, and they dismantle white supremacy, and that is the true reason they are being banned. Not because they threaten children, but rather because they threaten the Pleasantville that white Americans live in and want so desperately to protect. I hope the people that need these books that are banned gain access to them. I hope it is safe when they do and they take from them the joy of learning about the world around them and learning about themselves. I would recommend those of us in positions to do so give to organizations fighting these bans and also help people gain access to these books that have been taken from them. Bandbooksweek.org is a great starting point to find organizations to donate to that aid with these specific causes. One of these organizations, the American Library Association, is the foremost national organization providing resources to inspire library and information professionals to transform their communities through essential programs and services. Of course, you can always give to the American Civil Liberties Union, who is providing legal aid to fight these bans before they go into effect. There's a lot of work for us to do. So, now let's get into today's episode. This week, we aren't talking about a book directly. This week, we are going to tackle one of my absolute favorite superheroes. I want to discuss them as they appeared in comic books and also as they are portrayed in film. I also want to expand my ability to discuss media in general. The previous pilot test episodes related directly to novels and even then heavy with literature fiction from time periods far from modern. So today we are going back to 1948. We can probably go back even further to 1939, the arrival of Detective Comics number 27, The Case of the Chemical Syndicate. At this time, Detective Comics were a series, and you would essentially wait for an individual character to get their issue. Not like today, where we can specifically go searching for a Superman comic book, or Spider-Man even. Detective Comics number 27 gave the first arrival of the Cape Crusader, Batman. Cue Michael Giacchino score. Well, 
maybe not for this Batman. This Batman most likely came swinging in on a Zorro-style organ theme song. In 1943, we would actually get a better idea of what that theme is when Columbia Pictures released a series of episodic films of about 15 to 20 minutes each, heavy strings to simulate bat echoes, deep organ and cello to get us the darkness of the night, and the fanfare of a hero shrouded in mystery. So I guess, yes, the Michael Giacchino score, just in that golden Hollywood style. It was a golden age of comic books in the 40s, and of course, the golden age of Hollywood cannot pass up its opportunity to cash in on the explosion of interest in superheroes. Now, we've definitely come a long way, and today I'm going to be attempting to do something that is a little all over the place. I'm going to be discussing Detective Comics number 140, the first time we meet the Riddler, Lambert Hillier's Columbia Picture Serial, the first film appearance of Batman, The Long Halloween, a 13-issue series by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale, as well as The Batman by Matt Reeves, starring Robert Pattinson. So there's a lot of history here and a lot of facts coming your way. Hopefully all fun and new for you, or for those this isn't new for, just a nice refresher. So let's get into this week's episode. The year was 1999. I was alone on the playground before school started. It was one of those days where my dad had dropped me off a bit earlier than normal, so I was the first of my classmates to show up. It was Monday. There was an overcast sky. I was five years old and in kindergarten. My family had a tradition of going to a small video store on the way back from my grandma's house. I would get dropped off with her sometimes after school since my mom worked nights and my grandma would take care of me and my little brother. So Fridays, if I hadn't begged my parents to let me stay the night, we'd drive home and along the way I'd bounce up and down in my seat begging for my parents to stop at the movie rental place. It's called Vela Video on Atlantic Avenue. I can still remember the layout. I mostly rented cartoon movies. A lot of times my parents would have to stop me from renting my favorite cartoons that I already had on VHS at home. This weekend, my parents picked out the movie. Batman Forever. I had a vague idea who Batman was. My uncle collected comic books. He has a huge collection of Batman, Superman, Godzilla even. He used to ask me if I knew who Batman was, and as far as I knew, he was a hero dressed like a bat, and the comic book that he came in was yellow, and he was blue. I watched that movie maybe three times back to back. I couldn't stop obsessing over just how cool Batman was. I wanted to be Batman, and I wanted to be Robin. I would imagine what it would be like to fight like him, to be as acrobatic as Robin. I wanted to fight Two-Face, and I wanted to be smarter than the puzzles left behind by the Riddler. So there I was in school Monday, thinking, I can't fight crime while I'm in school. So how did I fight the Batman Blues? I reenacted the movie from memory. My favorite part to reenact was the opening sequence, the sheer overacting of Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face, and the amazing introduction of Val Kilmer as Batman. I would recite lines and act them out without even knowing what they actually even meant. I remember my kindergarten teacher came out and caught me doing the scene and called me over. I was so embarrassed. She wanted me to help her get stuff set up for the day. I was kind of a teacher's pet growing up. And from that weekend forward, I was obsessed. But Batman Forever is a story for another day, and I think it deserves its own episode. Now, growing up, my uncle would offer to let me borrow his comic books, but so many of them were mint condition and kept so neatly in plastic wraps and locked away in a box, my mom would never let that happen. So I was allowed to read the comic books only when we went to his house and while he was with me. I couldn't read yet, so I just looked at the pictures. Comic after comic, crime after crime, villain after villain. It was a world unlike anything I could have imagined. 
Still, the comics were nowhere near as exciting to me as seeing Batman in the flesh on the TV. That is something that remains true for anyone that is a fan of comic books. A comic is amazing, but there's something about seeing them come to life that is truly magical. We need to talk about why Batman exists, what led to the golden age of comic books, why are we still talking about Batman nearly 90 years after his debut? There's a lot of questions. And to begin, comic books are often described as one of five Native American art forms. Now, already off the bat, no pun intended, we have our first problematic theme of comic books. No one really talks about them this way anymore, we've gotten rid of that phrase, but for some time this was the mindset that this was a Native American art firm, referring to its birth in the United States, nothing to do at all with Native Americans. It is listed with banjos, vaudeville, musical comedy, mystery stories, and jazz. Without giving away too much, a lot of these items were used to ridicule marginalized folks, or give a stage to racism, or simply erase black creativity altogether. Jazz was thought to cause people to act out in inappropriate ways, which is just code for white people didn't want black invented music to get too popular. Vaudeville and musical comedies often caricatured black people with the use of blackface or stereotype black actors to play a specific role. That would continue all the way up until the 1960s, and even continues to some extent, but in a different format in modern time. Edgar Allan Poe is credited for mystery stories, though I would have never thought that, but alas, that's what Google told me years ago, so I say that until someone proves it wrong. So it's the 1930s, and wars on the brink. Nazis become a manifestation of pure evil for people around the globe. The news is wrought with disasters. The First World War was not too long earlier, and many people's grandparents fought in that war and came back changed men. World War II was coming, and it was on the United States doorstep. In come the comic books. They were a way of escaping everyday troubles. Detective Comics was looking for something just as flashy as Superman. They had a huge success with the chosen son of Krypton. So rather than give DC a copy of Superman and all the hope for the world in bright colors, Bob Kane, creator of Batman, went the opposite. He gave us a character lurking in the shadows that wore all black as opposed to the bright blue and red of Superman. On top of that, Batman would fight crime that was tied to the reality of the world we live in. Batman did something for comics that changed the trajectory of comics for the rest of time. He was modeled off of pulp comics, pulp fiction, darker, gritty, almost terrifying characters and scenarios. Batman wasn't completely pulp, but he had enough ties to it that pulp art styles began to make their way into what are now mainstream comic book characters. Radio shows like uh, The Shadow inspired the character, and of course, Zorro. Bob Kane talked about about that a lot, that he modeled Batman off Douglas Fairbanks' portrayal of Zorro, and the Batmobile off his trusty steed Tornado. Batman has always been a reflection of his world and offers a strange sense of hope. 
he's a hero, but he works alone. He's a hero, but his villains are the underground crime, usually low-level gangsters that prey on the naivety of the citizens around them. I personally think that's why Batman 1989 is so well-received. It wasn't so dark in its portrayal of the world, it was campy, it made fun of itself, but also took itself seriously. Batman's golden age hit its peak and Hollywood jumped on board. They ordered a 12-episode serial to be played at Nickelodeon's between newsreels and films and Mickey Mouse cartoons. Columbia Pictures reinvents the Batman. Nineteen forty-three. Not long after the Batman first appeared in Detective Comics number twenty-seven, he arrives on the big screen with his boy wonder sidekick Robin. His first appearance, Detective Comics number thirty-eight, three years earlier, in hopes of softening up the Batman, making him more soft by giving him a child companion. It's the height of World War II. The United States was attacked at Pearl Harbor. Japanese Americans were interned throughout the United States, and like many superheroes. Batman went to war. And like many films of the Golden Age Hollywood, it was propaganda that brought him to the big screen. Batman was used in art to sell war bonds and to help support the war effort through morale boosts. It was not uncommon for Hollywood to use popular characters to get people in a way excited and hopeful about the war effort. The United States Army used the Walt Disney Studio to publish anti-Nazi, anti-Hitler cartoons. That's where we get the viral Tumblr images of Donald seeking Heil in the Führer's face. Honestly, just a wild time for cartoons. Donald appears in his pie-eyed opening headshot wearing an army cap. We immediately jump into a Disney tune about seeking Heil and Joseph Goebbels. Honestly, the cartoon's a lot. We have effeminate Nazis to show them being lesser than, and caricatures of Japanese characters wearing swastikas. There's... A lot to unpack about this period in United States propaganda, which brings me back to the beginning of today's episode. The stuff kids were specifically advertised with cartoon characters back then, and this was specifically targeted to young children, was far more aggressive. Imagine just showing kids this is what is waiting for you if the Nazis win, this horror, this absolute bedlam, but we can't tell a kid you have agency over your sexual health in your body. There's... Just so much wrong with all of that. And that's just the beginning. There's another Disney cartoon where Donald is specifically enlisted to go to war against the Japanese. Uh, Commando Duck uses the goofy way 
formula at the beginning where Donald is spoken to by the narrator about what his mission is, to surround and wipe out the enemy. In this case, the Japanese. Mando Duck, here are your orders. Yes, sir. You will parachute at 0600 on position D4. You will proceed down the inland river indicated on your map. Now you're cautioned to be on the alert for snipers and man-eating crocodiles. Oh, sir! Oh, I beg my pardon. I bow my stomach at you very reverent. That's all right. Happy cherry blossoms to you, please. But what does that have to do with Batman? Well, the Batman series goes on a hunt, fighting against organized crime in the serial that has now been remastered and released on disc format. It was also recently available on the Watch TCM app. That's where I was able to revisit it within the last year. So for those of you that haven't seen the serial, here's a breakdown. And sorry everyone, it's been 80 years, I think we've passed the grace period for spoilers on this one. So yeah. We meet Batman as he has been enlisted by the US government to be a secret agent to overthrow a terrorist plot to dismantle the government. Simple enough. Big superhero movies could make for some fun action comparing it to the plot of The Dark Knight. Some parallels, terrorist plot overthrown by Batman, just no U.S. government affiliation directly. Well, that's the propaganda piece. But wait, <laughs> there's more. The plot thickens. Batman's mission is to stop a Japanese terrorist villain from liberating interned Japanese citizens to help him overthrow the United States. So let's break that down. Simply put, the U.S. wanted to get people on board with the idea that Executive Order 9066 was needed because if they didn't, the Japanese Americans would overthrow the government. It's odd, because posters for the film series don't have a Japanese villain. Instead, they have a pale-faced, green-haired, purple-suit-wearing villain. I wonder who that was supposed to be. Instead of getting the Clown Prince of Crime, we get Yellowface. J. Carol Nash plays Dr. Daka, who is referred to as a Jap, a shifty-eyed Jap, and numerous other slurs from Batman and other characters throughout the film. It is unfortunate that the very first film arrival of Batman is this. It's actually appalling. Like I said, I grew up loving Batman, and it's a big part of my current superhero fascination. With that comes the hard truth of reminding people that there are a lot of problems with comic books, and a lot of wrongs in the past that we have to acknowledge and correct moving forward. But David, it was 1943, they were different times, can't we allow that piece to exist in its time and not hold it to the terms of modern day? I hear ya. And to that, I say no. No explanation. Just no. Can't we accept these caricatures of Japanese people were done to better get people to understand the enemy of the war? The enemy is war. Always. And the actions of an elitist, evil, corrupt government should never fall on the culture and heritage of a people, but rather should be left to be accounted for by those in power. It's literally why watching Russian people suffer due to the sanctions of the West during this current invasion of Ukraine is super immoral. 
Because those in power will never feel the hardship of their dollar disappearing overnight, but they seize those oligarchs, yachts, okay? Anyway, I digress. The moral of this is that the victims of war are everyone, not, the, not just those lost to it, whether it's the good side or the bad side. The serial is pretty basic. Early Hollywood, low budget, point and shoot, a lot of heavy lighting to make sure the black costumes get picked up by the camera properly. In terms of amazing film history, not much to really go off of here. We get some poor editing. Every time there's a crash through a window, there's a jump cut from stunt person to actors. Nothing to write home about, but in terms of Batman lore, we get a couple things. This is the first time we get a cave. The Bat's Cave will let her be transformed into the Bat Cave. Alfred in the comics was actually a heavy set butler, but this movie portrayed him as thin with the mustache, which is the Alfred that will go on to be used until modern day. The film also sets up tropes that will be used in the 1960 henchmen gimmicks, a lot of mind control, puzzles, and fist-to-fist -fist combat that always has Batman in the lead. Alright, are you still here with me? This has been a heavy episode already, and there's a lot happening, and a lot of things we're touching on. I think these tend to be heavier because they're far more modern than the previous topics we have covered. Most of the books from the previous episodes took place in the 1800s, and it's easy for us to put distance between ourselves and two centuries of disgrace. Batman and the problematic comic books of the Golden Age are far more recent and deal with forms of racism and racist themes that are still present today. We can look at the caricatures of Asian people during the COVID pandemic and see they are not at all different from the caricatures of Japanese people in comics, cartoons, and film of the Batman's beginning. So let's switch gears a little bit and discuss a comic book that came after the 1943 film number 140 in 1948. The arrival of Edward Nigma and the creation of the question mark covered leotard wearing villain, the Riddler. The comic opens with Edward Nigma in school, cheating his way into becoming a puzzle master, thinking it is his, it is his birthright to be because of his name, E. Nigma. We jump forward a couple years and we get a glimpse into Gotham needing a Wardle style daily game and a New York Times mini. Gotta keep the podcast hip and current for the Gen Zers listening. The Riddler hijacks the game to get Batman and Robin to chase after him. He hopes to be able to outsmart the Batman. This comic has one of my absolute favorite riddles of all Batman time. Dear Batman, here's a corny riddle. To tip you off to my next job, why is corn hard to escape from? Now speaking Spanish, it was easy for me. Maize. Maize. In the ending, the Riddler blows up and disappears into Gotham Harbor, leaving behind only a floating question mark. Bum, bum, bum. It's a fun read. Uh, we get a great team-up of Batman and Robin, a prime introduction of the Puzzle Master and all his fun word plays. For a minute, Batman is tricked and we get to see him flounder in confusion. Unfortunately, as always, the Riddler's hubris gets in the way and ultimately loses it all for him. But why does all this matter? Something happens at the end of this comic and it's the floating question mark in the water. Batman fights and fights all these villains, takes them down one by one, but in the end they come back. 
We get almost 90 years of classic villains returning, never learning their lesson, and pushing Batman and the Bat family to their limits. In terms of storytelling, what does this mean for us as writers? What do we learn from Batman comics and the overall reappearance of a villain? Well, to learn about that, we need to go all the way back to World War I. It's war episode, kids. I'm sorry. Well, actually, we have to go to after World War I. Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit were products of Tolkien's time in the war and the atrocities he saw. It also allowed him to understand the evil of a man on a whole nother level. It allowed him to perfect the idea of the long defeat. And according to the Lord of the Rings companion, the long defeat is when we discover that no victory is complete, that evil rises again, and even victory brings loss. Pretty self-explanatory, right? But if you don't get it, Batman is meant to fight these villains over and over and over until time ends. These villains feed off the naivety of human rights, of human nature. These supervillains are Gotham, and Batman is the flip side. His mission is never complete, and we learn that from the people that Gotham continues to breed, and the people that Batman defeats and locks away at Arkham. Even if the Riddler never returns, Condiment Man still gets his moment to shine. The Black Mask is still pumping sludge from the Ace Chemical Plant. The Scarecrow will always have a new fear toxin that Batman needs to become immune to. This theory of the long defeat is what keeps Batman coming back. It's what keeps him fresh. It's why Gotham stays so interesting. It's also why the world stays so on fire. It's noble, however, to see a man be so dedicated to being better than the world he has been dealt. His small victories give him and us, the reader, hope to keep going. Galadriel prophesizes this for Aragorn, and it might as well be for Batman too, that war will go on for centuries against Sauron. War will go on forever in Gotham. The corruption remains, and even when he thinks there is hope, new evil shall prevail. Which brings us to our next piece, The Long Halloween aptly named as the main theme of the comic series is the long defeat, the never-ending corruption wrought on Gotham citizens as people are brought from the light down into the shadow. Hold on to that line for later in the episode too. So, why is the long Halloween important to the lore of Batman and why talk about it after we've already discussed an early comic? Well, we need to show where Batman is now, or at least a major turning point in Batman history. This Batman takes place just after year one, which is a story for another day, but what we get is a better experienced Batman with his allies, specifically Catwoman. This is probably the most visual transformation we have of Gotham City in relation to its early days. When we look at Gotham that exists in the Riddler comic we discussed earlier, it's an idealized New York City, an idealized American metropolis. The comic, originally published in 1996 as a 13-issue monthly serial, has given rise to a much darker Gotham City and has influenced Batman far greater than any other print version of Batman. By this time, we had gotten a very different Batman in film with Tim Burton's Batman and Batman Returns, which helped influence Batman the animated series, which would ultimately help lead to a far more gothic Gotham in The Long Halloween. So, what is The Long Halloween? It is a turning point for Gotham, and is a very hopeful story, but plays out like a film noir, something that has always been at the center of Batman, the world's greatest detective. Batman in the 60s was campy and the long Halloween is anything but. It opens with a murder, and then continues to string murders together up until the very end, weaving together the full rogues gallery of Batman villains. We get to see Batman face off against 
Joker, Riddler, Scarecrow, Poison Ivy, and do his will-they-won't-they dance with Catwoman. These villains Batman takes with ease, almost fully calculated and with no concern that he may not be able to stop everything at play. The one thing he has very little control over is the histories of tension in the underbelly of Gotham, the crime families that have held control over the city politically or even just intimidation are no match for Batman. Batman is known for fighting off one-on-one -on -one villains with no problem, but always falls short when it comes to the systemic issues that plague Gotham City. This is, in a way, corrected by his alter ego, Bruce Wayne, who spends time fixing issues in Gotham City that his money can try and solve, but unfortunately the corruption of the city tends to always get in the way of those attempts. So Batman and Bruce are both in a long defeat. The Long Halloween gives Batman and Bruce Wayne a prospective way out from their long defeat. It comes by way of Harvey Dent, a young, highly qualified district attorney hoping to clean up the streets of Gotham's crime families. The Long Halloween shows how even the most pure of Gotham citizens can in a way be turned by the city bringing them into the dark. The Long Halloween serves as a way of giving Harvey Dent an origin story that transforms him into Two-Face, but also gives Gotham its transformation to a city that will never be free of its tragedies, even with the crime families defeated. So what can we as writers take from these comics? The beauty of comics is they allow a writer to take on established characters, settings, and even lore and morph them to their wants or continue to use them as is to create a new story. Detective Comic number 140, The Riddler, written by Bill Finger, co-creator of Batman with Bob Kane, which is honestly surprising I haven't mentioned either of them at this point. This is a perfect example of how we can take pre-existing lore and further it with our own spins. Sometimes playing with established lore is much easier than starting from scratch on your own. The beauty of also creating a serial of sorts with comics and graphic novels is how we can leave characters with mystery by not establishing them fully in the world, rather allowing them to develop over time. With Batman, that can definitely be the case. Hide your character's secrets until they definitely need to be presented. Graphic novels are also at times very direct in their writing. The illustration aspect provided by graphic novels and comics allows an author to do what many screenwriters do, and that is to show not tell. How much story can we put into the world and how can we be sure that dialogue is only what is necessary? Graphic novels and comics are very similar to film writing. A good story drops us right into the action, which is one of the tenets taught in film school. Start in the middle of the action. Batman comics drop us right in. Most comics do. Gotham is as much alive, um, living, breathing character as any of the Bat family or as much as any of the rogues gallery that inhabit the space. Gotham's evolution through the years from being a bright metropolis to a gothic cityscape and later becoming a gritty, dark, crime-filled city allows us as readers to get a better understanding of what we are in for. When we look at the darkness that is the Long Halloween, we are immediately provided with a glimpse of Gotham in a dark gothic state. We also are given a color scheme that is heavy on blue and black. Without going too much into aesthetic studies and color symbolism, we are already in a heavy space from the beginning, then the opening line describing Halloween. Readers can expect everything that goes along with the holiday, specifically, specifically tricks, treats, and disguises. The graphic novel is a series of twists and turns and reveals culminating in an unexpected rising action and climax.
The Long Halloween establishes a new lore for Batman and becomes a staple of what to expect of the hero moving forward. Batman 89 comics revert us back to a campy Burton world, but those that fall in what would be the main line of Batman comics tend to stem from the branch formed by the Long Halloween. Okay, I think it's time for a small break. We've been going about all this for a while, and it's only getting heavier from here. So, quick break, and then we'll be right back. brought us the next iteration of Batman, a more novice character than what we were seeing with Christopher Nolan and Zack Snyder. Matt Reeves brought us Year 2 Batman, which is the exact same Batman we meet in The Long Halloween. The Batman, directed by Matt Reeves, starring Robert Pattinson, is currently being heralded as one of, if not, the best Batman we have seen on screen. So, let's dissect some of the film choices that were made well, during the making of it. Now, this is our first time discussing a film piece, so it's going to take some time to get through it all. With that, it is important to pull together everything we already know about Batman from the brief history I gave of 
both the character and of the overall themes we find in The Long Halloween. Also, if you have not seen The Batman, this is going to be spoiler heavy. I would recommend watching the film, then coming back to listen to the remainder of the podcast. Matt Reeves' Batman film embraces the dark grit that is known to exist in the comics and embraces the camp that has always followed Batman in every iteration that has made it to the screen. We open with a strange binocular shot from what we will later understand as the Riddler's perspective. The movie opens up with the familiar tune, Ave Maria. Then we are thrusted immediately into the darkness that is the Batman. A scene from a horror film, the villain standing, lurking, just out of sight in the shadows. The Riddler commits murder. Now, let's juxtapose this for a moment with what Batman says at the end of his monologue. They think I'm lurking in the shadows, but I am the shadows. Bruce Wayne, Batman, immediately draws a parallel between himself and the villains that he goes up against. Both of them lurk in the shadows. How they use the shadows could not be more different. And the shadows become themselves a character of their own during the duration of the film. When we write novels or stories of any kind, what we can't quite convey are these images of shadows and their uses as much as we can present them visually like in this film. Or rather relying on the reader to understand the complexity of shadow can be tricky. In their most basic sense, a symbol of shadows are easily understood, obscurity, fear, unknown. However, when we match this with film, we immediately get the opposing ideas for the Riddler and Batman and how they use the shadows. Batman uses the shadows to bring his own version of justice to Gotham, fighting those that prey on the weak of the city. Riddler uses the shadows to also exact his own version of justice, but a against anyone he feels has wronged him personally. Even, a, even talking about this now, I'm seeing how, confu how confusing this is. Riddler hides in the shadows to murder. Batman uses the shadows to protect. We often don't think of shadows as protection when dissecting the symbolism of shadows. However, we in film don't rely on simply the visual aspects and dialogue to tell our stories. There is another piece, and that is the sound of a film. During the murder that opens the film, Riddler's theme has hints of Ave Maria. We have to address the symbolism of the music choices in film, just as much as how we discuss camera choices, dialogue, deliveries, and color scheme. Ave Maria is a popular Catholic song composed by Franz Schubert in 1825. Two major moments in Catholic service the song is used are just before Christmas, and the Sunday before specifically, and the Feast of the Annunciation. The one I want to focus on here is the Annunciation. For those that aren't familiar with the story of the Bible, Annunciation is the moment Mary is visited by an angel and accepts her role in bringing God to earth by way of Jesus Christ. The coming of salvation from sin. At the beginning it plays as a haunting melody, and most people would be triggered to have it associated with death as the song is also popularly performed at funerals as well. The imagery on screen would also lead us to make this connection as we get to understand the Riddler we begin to realize that he has a skewed view of himself and of his practices. He believes he is saving Gotham by murdering its more corrupt citizens, so the Ave Maria showing up in this scene could be more as his view of the Annunciation to his birth, his arrival in Gotham to clean up the streets and be its salvation from its sins. We have to then break down Batman's theme. 
Unlike the dreamy sounds that encapsulate the Riddler's theme, we get a heavier bass, a more geometric sound. The Batman's theme is more ominous, and many people have compared it to John Williams' Imperial March, the theme we hear when Darth Vader appears on screen. And some people would recognize the Dies Irae, another popular Catholic tune that brings images of death, despair, or doom. The sound can be heard in many scores, so if we use that idea and put the Batman under that imagery, we can see how this John Williams-inspired piece can bring impending doom and despair for Batman and Bruce Wayne. Bruce, living a life almost in a sense of defeat watching Gotham crumble and being its chosen son. For Batman, it would be the doom all around him. The deaths from the Riddler, the unknown that he faces, the DSC ray would bring us back to the long defeat. We will watch Batman succeed knowing he is young and experienced, or will he defeat the Riddler? Well, that's one way to look at the theme, but the other is to then listen to it with the second Batman theme in mind, Something in the Way by Nirvana. If we slow down that song, strip away most of the beat and vocals, we can have a heavy bassed sound that almost matches the Batman's first theme. So are we listening to the DSC rare, or are we listening to the more stripped, cranked up version of a Nirvana song? Now, what symbolism would that have? Nirvana is often associated with its leader Kurt Cobain, no surprise there, but we can also associate Nirvana with the alternative scene and the 90s rebel sounds that entered rock during this time period. A sense of distrust for authority, a sense of being misunderstood, and a sense of wanting to be heard and seen. Bruce's theme would be in a way Nirvana, and Batman the other, two sides of the same coin. Bruce is eager to not need to be the prodigal son, but would rather the city fix itself, and he would rather not need Batman, but is battling with the necessity that is Batman. He feels he is able to accomplish more as his alter ego, but neither can exist without the other. Both sides of our hero play integral roles to each other's survival. Now, I'll dissect this more as we continue. Now. We have the first 15 minutes of the film covered, we can move on to the meat of it all. This film breaks with current trends of superhero films. Marvel uses plenty of CGI and screen technology to create the heroes for the Avengers. Reeves went a different direction, yes, still confining the actors to a similar space like a Marvel film, but being able to adjust lighting from the city, sun, moon, and control aesthetics of the film in real time. How did he do this? by using LED screens as his backdrop. Actors are able to see the environment they are interacting with in real time, and some Marvel scenes rely so heavily on CGI we aren't quite sure of the environments until the film is finally finished. It's a newer technology, but allows for a director to have more control over the CGI processes along the way. However, what this means is that all of Gotham had to be designed before any shooting began. The world was designed, and now the actors get to play in real time, but also allows for proper lighting to be used and adjusted as needed to better match the CGI environment. In order for this to work, there has to be a team of people ready to adapt at a moment's notice. We want a scene at sunset instead of nightfall? Turn the clock back on the LED screens, and add oranges and reds to the lighting gear to match the background, and remove the guesswork of what the lighting will be in the editing room later. We can create more realistic, artificial environments. Which brings me to my next big piece of this film, the car chase. Probably 
But one piece of the film that was teased over and over and when it arrived on the big screen, the sound of the Batmobile lighting up its engine and roaring to life truly did not disappoint. LED screens allow for CGI components to be brought into the space so actors can react to the environment in real time. For a chase as grand as this one, there is truly no other way. Essentially what happens is they turn the cars into one big motion simulator attraction. Vehicles are maneuvered on rigs in the directions they need, following pre-filmed and other in-camera effects. A wall of LED screens in front and behind allow the camera to capture in real time a CGI Gotham and practical effects in unison. It is amazing watching the behind-the-scenes pieces. I recommend them on HBO Max, this one in particular. We as an audience can only be brought into the film if everything happening before us is believable. Which brings us to our first big film idea, the suspension of disbelief. Now, I know a lot of folks listening to this already know what this is, but I want to remind everyone this is meant to be a film 101. So, the suspension of disbelief, it is our ability as an audience and as creators to allow ourselves to be transported out of reality and truly feel the stakes of the entertainment happening before us. One of the most powerful tools in a director, writer, or artist's belt is our understanding of what can be truly believable to an audience. And all of it has to come down to understanding every aspect of film creation. We can't simply understand how to point and shoot a camera. We must understand the importance of lighting, of sound, of practical and visual effects. We must understand that one miscalculation of any aspect of these techniques can break a person's suspension. If we are using a fluorescent light in a dim lit scene, it won't matter how great an actor's delivery is. The audience won't believe a moment of it. Understanding suspension is what allows us to make movies that don't let people know they are watching a movie. I wanted you to hold on to a quote from the podcast earlier when I said Harvey Dent is brought from the light down to the dark. The Batman shows us what happens when the darkness takes one of Gotham's citizens that is left behind. He uses the light as punishment when he asks Batman to bring Maroney to the light and removes the crime boss from his position of power with a single bullet. We watch as the Riddler plunges Gotham into darkness using explosives, a flood, to leave people stranded, helpless, and in one of the final scenes we get the opposite imagery. Batman leading his city through the darkness into the light of day. To safety. The Batman takes the message of the helplessness we feel that turns those around us to crime and says, what if there was someone there to guide them back? Guide everyone out of despair and be a symbol of hope. I think I've gushed over the film enough. I highly recommend watching the film, and this episode has gone long enough, so let's move on to the final piece of this. How does everything connect? Well, I went from the start to now in a very cherry-picked fashion. Why did I pick certain pieces of media from Batman's history and film media to drive home this episode? The 1940 film serial had a very interesting villain, and it is something that comics have done for a very long time. By placing real-life threats in their stories, the readers can relate better. Captain America fought Hitler in his first appearance, cementing where he stands and at one time being a symbol of what America truly stood for. Now we have very fine people on both sides. And that image of Hitler being punched out by a symbol of American creativity and pride is almost muddled and lost to time. The Batman serial pitted Batman against Dr. Daka, a Japanese supervillain, a modern threat to what America stood for at that time. In the Batman, the villain is something that we have come to understand too well now. 
It is our current and modern long defeat. The gun violence epidemic in the United States. When I started writing this episode, and I was going to address the final battle in the Garden Stadium, there had been a shooting on a subway in New York. Not long after, a shooting at a church here in Southern California, Orange County. Then a shooting at a Buffalo grocery store. Then, and I have yet to wrap my mind around it, and the reason I have spent so long sitting on this episode, the mass murder of school children in Uvalde, Texas. I still sit in awe at the images and the outcomes from that day. Those children deserved a life full of sun, full of laughter, and full of their friends and family. All of these victims of these shootings that seem to happen one after another with no pause to mourn or process deserve so much more than how their lives were taken. I sat in the theater watching the finale to Batman as all those people scrambled from the gunmen. I thought to myself and even said out loud to my siblings, what do you even do? The long Halloween showed us what happens to a city as it is pulled by the powers that be in their greed-filled directions. We are pulled, and even those that are good around us can be pulled into the darkness. The Batman asks the question, what if we all realize the tasks we feel are too large for us to take on alone are just that? Too big because we haven't found the community properly to fight back. I mentioned how book bans target specific groups and it is up to all of us, not just the groups affected, to stand up for what is right. The tasks that are too big for us individually cease to exist as we all rally together and fight back. The Batman begged the question, how would a city like Gotham bounce back from something this horrific, this tragic, we are watching the community hold on to hope and love and stand up against gun lobbies, its city officials, its state officials, as they hold everyone accountable from taking the lives of those babies in school. We all deserve a community like the one of the citizens of Uvalde. And then maybe there will never again be a need for Batman. Once again, this has been The Annotated Author with David Mosqueda. If you enjoyed this episode, please comment, like, subscribe to the podcast on anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And if you would like, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Those handles will be listed down in the show notes. Thanks all for listening, and I look forward to talking with you all again. Bye.